Just over 50 years ago, a rebellion in the West Bengal village of Naxalbari sparked off an enduring communist insurgency against the Indian state. The Naxalites eventually took the jungle of central and eastern India in Jharkhand and Bihar to take up a Maoist people's war. The areas which became their strongholds were also home to indigenous Adivasi peoples, many of whom, especially the young, joined the insurgency. Until recently, few in the West gave much thought to the Naxalites, and among even the most internationally minded of Western leftists, they've never attracted the cachet, respect, or simply the interest given to the blending of communist and indigenous struggle elsewhere among the Zapatistas in Oaxaca, or or the recension of communist thought which resulted in Rojava in Kurdistan. In part, of course, that might be because the Naxalites have been less interested in their international reputation, are more prone to vicious sectarianism, and certainly during the 1990s had less strategic compunction about the use of violence. But that isolation from attention has begun to change in the past decade as prominent writers and journalists have been invited to meet with some of the Naxalites just as they face wipeout from an ever more intensifying state crackdown. But what drives them on in even the face of state violence, torture and extrajudicial murder? Today we'll go beyond the propaganda of the Indian state and beyond some of the more simplistic or dogmatic explorations of this insurgency and into the inner world of the Naxalites. You're listening to Navarra FM on Resonance 104.4 FM London. I am James Butler. In 2009, the then Prime Minister of India, Manmohan Singh, declared that if left-wing extremism continues to flourish in important parts of our country, which have tremendous natural resources of minerals and other precious things, that will certainly affect the climate for investment. His Home Minister, P. Chidambaran, who masterminded the first wave of the crackdown, had previously worked as a corporate lawyer for several large mining concerns and sat as a non-executive director of Vedanta, the British mining corporation planning to excavate, excavate bauxite in many areas of India, including those inconveniently controlled by the guerrillas. In the decades since, there has been wave after wave of crackdown and military intensification, with soldiers and security forces pouring into the jungle, uh, alongside assassination of key leaders, often in engineered entrapments or so-called fake encounters. And under Narendra Modi, this has taken an even harsher turn, with Naxalism used as an excuse to imprison human rights defenders, trade unionists and journalists in the cities. But what motivates the Naxals? Why do so many young Adivasis drift in and out of the people's army, even now after years of repression? What is it that the leaders of this movement actually believe? What is it like to be, in some ways, the last outpost of the global Maoism which swept the world in the late 1960s? How has their analysis changed, as the times have changed, if at all? Has the encounter with Advasi culture changed the nature of their politics? How do they deal with the contradictions and temptations presented when the reality of seizing territory brings them closer to capitalist exchange and market logic? What prevents them from contesting the state in the political sphere? And why do they boycott elections? Can this position really be maintained? What world do they dream of when they sleep, hiding in the jungle depths? Hi there, I'm Alpa, Alpa Shah. Um... I'm a professor of anthropology at the London School of Economics. Alpa's book, Night March, is a thrilling, fascinating and complex account of the time that she spent embedded among the guerrillas. So I think we should dive in and talk really about the book, which is a piece of sort of narrative non-fiction, and it's centred around the Seven Nights March that you took while embedded with a a platoon of of Naxalite guerrillas in Bihar, I think, and you were walking to Jharkhand, am I right? That's right. That's what the book's framed around, yes. 
And around that structure, you you weave this series of sort of mini essays, both on the emergence of the Naxalite insurgency and also really interestingly, and I think really at times very movingly, on the internal culture, the sort of inner world of of these these men, very predominantly men you're marching with, but also women as well. Um, and their stories and their their different their differing motivations, and I wonder maybe we should start there. You know, there's been I think more attention uh, to them in the past few years, but this movement is still not I think enormously well known. So where where do the Naxalites come from? Well, they take their name from a 1967 rebellion in a small village called Naxalbari in West Bengal in the foothills of the Himalayas where peasants decided to, you know, take up arms and um, basically overthrow the landlords, say we want our lands back, um, we want to, you know, cancel all our debts. A a little rebellion which was actually brutally crushed um, by the Indian state at the time. But the idea of this rebellion sparked kind of resistance and protest against the various feudal regimes that were underway in many parts of the country then. And and it sparked off rebellions, you know, thousands of kilometers away um, and inspired, you know, people to protest against their oppression and against the general inequality around them. Uh, Inspired a lot of youth in the universities uh, of Calcutta and other places. Uh, Delhi, Mumbai, uh, Patna, um, Hyderabad, Telangana, you know, um, to to join with uh, with the peasants. The, uh, the idea eventually was complete overthrow of the state for a communist society. So this was a rebellion that was very inspired by the communist movement in India. And then, you know, successive years saw different periods of repression and rebellion and um but this idea of Naxalbari um, has kind of grown uh, across India uh, to symbolize protest and resistance uh, against um, yeah, feudal inequalities and now much more also the, those generated by the kind of capitalism that India has undergone in recent years. You know, I mean, I think it's important to to connect them to this, and you do it very well in in the opening of the book. You connect them to the sort of global presence of Maoism, which often has actually not an enormous to, deal to do with what's going on in China at the time. The, the way that Maoism is taken up across the globe, um, less the case in, in the Indian Maoism, simply by the case of geographical proximity, means that as as you narrate, there's some contact there. Um, and I think we'll come on to think a bit about the way in which communist thought changes um, through the process of this struggle. But I think perhaps initially the the place for us to start is just to to talk a little bit about, so in the initial wave uh, of the insurgency, there's an attempt to to organise among Dalits, particularly in in the plains where where you have these, these kind of vast uh, industrial operations going on, and then you know after this this first wave of repression, there's a movement towards the the jungles and towards the the forest, which is where um, much of, of your narrative takes place. And, and there, um, the movement comes into contact or greater contact with um, Advasi populations. Perhaps just for an audience who might not know um, the, these distinctions, um, could you tell us a little bit about those two those two categories? 
Well, the Dalits are the people who are formerly called untouchables, uh, who are right at the bottom of the caste system, who, you know, which is a system of very hierarchically organized interdependent social groups, which are which is almost legitimized by a kind of ritual idea ideology of purity and pollution. So the people at the top are, you know, the, the ones that are really pure, the Brahmins, and those at the bottom are the ones that take the impurity of all those at the top and become untouchable because of this impurity. And uh, these are the low castes who, who you know, who you find on the edges of villages, uh, cast, in fact, out of them, who are always downstream because they're polluted by the water that's coming upstream, who who live in in colonies where where the wind uh, comes from, oh, no, goes to, so that they you know all even even the wind is you know carries the pollution of of the upper castes, and so it's the Dalits who who, who receive it who do all the kind of horrible work of the village um, uh, or society, more generally manual scavenging, um, you know, cleaning up all the, yeah, being, being the cleaners of the village, cleaning up or, or who do all the sanitation work. Um, uh, yeah, so the, that's the, these are the Dalit populations who were uh, in the plains, pretty much bonded laborers uh, for the higher castes. And so you can see why, you know, they were the ideal kind of target group for the Naxlite movement to, you know, free them, who, which tried to free them of their bondage. But then these movements in the plains were very, um, uh, you know, susceptible to repression. So when the Indian state decided to send down its police and security forces, you can imagine these open plains where, you know, where do you hide? You know, you can hide uh, in the in, in amidst the rice fields when the crop is tall or you can hide within you know houses but it's very difficult right so these were these were yeah maoist inspired um guerrillas and they just uh you know read their uh, read their chairman mao and they read their che Guevara and uh, they realized that they've got to go in search of better terrain for guerrilla warfare and uh, so they retreated into the forests of central and eastern India. And these are areas where historically um, uh, subaltern populations from the rest of India had kind of migrated almost in order to um, uh, escape the repression and the oppression of the plains. And so these were forested, thick thickly forested um, landscapes, quite, you know, um, quite difficult to uh, inhabit. And these populations, um, these peoples decided, you know, different groups who became known as India's tribal groups, its indigenous populations, its Adivasis is a popular term, uh, which is currently used in India, its scheduled tribes, as, as the government called them. They migrated into these, into these forests where they lived um sometimes under under landlords but also pretty much you know many of them lived quite autonomously and they could do so because they had the forests around them that they could live off and so they were also able to develop cultures which were quite different to those of the of the plains which are very hierarchical as i said earlier and these these groups in the forests were in some ways a lot more egalitarian than um the the rest of indian society and these maoists um found themselves these naxalites found themselves in in these terrains uh, encountering these people with who 
they didn't, you know, who, who they had little experience of. And uh, they arrived there from the 1980s into the 90s. They really started to spread and uh, build their guerrilla um, bases. Well, they they didn't have a base in the in the Maoist sense, but you know they tried to build their strongholds. And the idea was that they'd really strengthen these areas, and then they spread again to the rest of the country, and eventually take over the cities. And you know the classic kind of Maoist trajectory of from the from from the country to to the cities. So yeah, I mean, I think I think we should jump in into to your story with them in a moment. But I just think probably here, here at really the start of the conversation, we should stress the wave of repression that that is now kind of ongoing, um, but but which has really been, you know, I mean, it's it's there. Obviously, you know, it's part of, of your book, um, the the Operation Green Hunt. But um, this has really taken on a life of its own. Uh, and really intensified under the current government. Um, and perhaps you could just say a little at the top of the show about this development of this kind of strange bogeyman of the urban Naxal uh, and the repression that that has been, I think, especially sharp over the last 18 months or so. Sure, yeah. Um, you know, as I was saying that, you know, this was the aim, the mouse always aimed to, you know, go into the urban areas. But the funny thing is that, they never, you know, that that was one of their big weaknesses. They criticized themselves for it, and uh, uh, and and as the repression began, which really began, um, you know, th- there have been so many rounds of repression, but this current round really began with the regime earlier to the current one, the Congress regime, um, and uh, and 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 I witnessed the beginning of it in two thousand and eight uh, to two thousand and ten when I was living in those strongholds, and. Um, uh, yeah, so th- this repression, you know, they surrounded all of these areas with the security forces, hundreds of thousands of troops were sent into the rural areas. And eventually, they just took over, you know, with their military barracks and, 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 their, and their security crowds, they took over even the most remotest, you know, outposts of these forests, places where I had lived uh, in 2008 and 2010, where the security forces would, wouldn't dare climb up unless there were in a force of 500 or more you know they wouldn't they just wouldn't climb into those hills because the Maoists had you know laid landmines along the way and they were afraid and you know these were considered areas that were controlled by the Maoists Um, all those areas now have um, have you know permanent barracks of of the security forces so then the next sites themselves was were squeezed into smaller and smaller and smaller and tiny and tinier pockets uh, of these forested areas so this movement was, you know, being crushed. Um, but then in 20, around 2018 or so, you know, suddenly um, a new round of repression begins by the Indian government. And, you know, they start uh, attacking a whole range of intellectuals, poets, lawyers, human rights activists li- living in uh, India's cities who um who they term you know urban naxals and it's all it's you know it's kind of quite macabre you know it looks like quite a macabre plot you know there was this one particular incident uh in, in the city of Bhima Koregao where um a, a battle a colonial battle in which dalits had had collaborated with uh, british soldiers to overthrow an up 
upper caste army was annually celebrated by Dalits. Um, uh, and uh, and at this at this occasion, you know, some some class clashes broke out at, at the end of 2017, beginning of 2018. And after this, um, uh, you know, there was a huge clampdown uh, and uh, houses of intellectuals in cities across the country, Mumbai, in Delhi, in Hyderabad, in Ranchi, you know, spread out everywhere, east, west, north, north, south, were simultaneously raided. And, you know, some of these people were like internationally well-known uh, academics, scholars, writers, people we've hosted, you know, at the LSE, uh, who've been, you know, to, yeah, who've been touring the, the un- universities of the, you know, United States and um, who are really well-known for their work, like the Dalit intellectual Anantel Tumde, um, you know, the writer Gautam Navlaka, the trade unionist uh, Sudha Bhardwaj, um, you know, all of these people were, you know, kind of quite extraordinary people who've been fighting for the causes of minorities through their writing or through, you know, their 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 um, legal work or through their civil rights work. And um, the, the government decided, you know, to, um, yeah, accuse them all in this in this violence at, of Bima Corregal uh, in early 2018, and uh, also said, uh, you know, that they were part, they were all uh, linked with the Naxalites, and that they were um, out there in a plot to assassinate the prime minister, and uh, without any trial, put them all uh, in jail. So over the last two years, you know, we now have 16 people who are in jail under this case, uh, all uh, targeted as urban Naxals um, and all under these very, you know, ancient kind of, uh, uh, yeah, very repressive terrorist, terrorist laws, which, uh, you know, so yeah, haven't kind of come up for trial at all. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it it, it is startling that the level of kind of you know, and it's it's actually a theme in, in various points throughout your book is is the level of sort of deception and uh, so called fake encounters, the way that these things are staged, or or simply you know the the circulation of, of propaganda and and sort of fraudulent uh, situations are sort of engineered by the security forces. Um, but I think maybe it's 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 worth jumping in then on on your own journey here because like I think there's quite an interesting story you have to tell about the way in which your opinion changes um you know in in the run up to 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 this book um because you describe having gone over to do sort of ngo work and or or rather research about uh, poverty and the way in which sort of ngo development funds get sort of siphoned off and waylaid and you know back then thinking of naxalites as just another sort of racket or just another gang sort of another mafia really that's often very present in kind of indian state depictions um, of the next night insurgency, and obviously your book, I think, is is very interesting for for being, you know, for resisting easy admiration, but being full of a kind of admiration mixed with uh, ambivalence or, or kind of critical approaches uh, to, to to the people you're writing about and, and living with. So, so tell me how your opinion changed. Well, I've lived in these forested areas for about four and a half years of my life, and when I first went out there in 1999 to 2002. 
these were areas that were not uh, controlled by the by the Naxalites, by these Maoists. And I saw them, you know, from afar trying to come into the villages I was living in. And they came in very much through, you know, trying to extort themselves, extort, take over the basically the protection rackets around development schemes, state development projects coming in and behaving very much like most of the other politicians in the area, the MLAs, um, protection racketeers. And um and 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 then I um I came back to England and I watched you know from afar what was going on and I realized that actually more and more Adivasis, uh, these indigenous people, uh, were joining them, uh, and they seemed to be spreading. And I thought I had maybe I had a very partial understanding of them. Um, you know, my my early work uh, on turned into a book on indigenous rights uh, in which I basically was quite critical of the cultural politics that kind of identity politics can lead to uh, indigenous rights politics can lead to and 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 argued for uh, an analysis that is driven more in material relations a kind of class analysis and that took me um, to thinking about class struggle um, and thinking about that more seriously in terms of challenging inequalities. And, you know, this seemed to be the most serious movement of class struggle there was around in India. And they seemed to be attracting more and more people from the places I lived in. So I thought, well, I've got to go back. You know, I clearly only had a partial understanding of what's going on. I've got to understand what's happening and, um, you know, why people are joining them, um, why these people who I never thought would be interested in them. And so uh, I returned between 2000 2008 and 2010 to live in another area which was part of uh, which was which was a stronghold where the movement had been strong for you know a few decades uh, to understand what was de- you know uh, how, why how and why Adivasis um, were involved in this movement and of course um, that that gave me a very different picture to the one that I had, which was, you know, which was a more partial one. Um, uh, and it made me understand much more why, um, you know, the, the foot soldiers of of this movement consisted of, of Adivasis um, and also all the kind of contradictions that lay within within the movement and with Adivasis joining the movement. Well, let's let's get into that a bit. Let's get into the sort of ideas and the sort of inner world of, of of the people you were were marching with, because this movement, you know, as as you write in towards the end of the book, that that the question of, of really of of the appropriate terms for this movement are often you know put under question by by scholars writing about it. I mean, they're they're obviously Maoist in the sense of adapting very strongly to to their local conditions and finding sort of local conditions for struggle. And they pay attention to political actors who aren't kind of the conventional uh, urban proletariat. I, and I think, you know, the, the, it became clear to me how important this heritage is in a section where you sketch the fierce debates and even sort of political violence, in fact, which accompanied um, debates over the nature of, of the Indian economy. And, and that debate, that question seems to me to motivate a lot of the political positions that are then taken by the movement as a whole, um, in- including the very nature of the insurgency itself. So, so could you tell us like why, what, what those debates over the nature of the Indian economy are and what, why they're so important to these people? 
Yeah, it's really interesting. What we have to understand is the movement consists of different kinds of people. So there are all of these Adivasi foot soldiers, these indigenous foot soldiers, but there's also um, a, a very strong leadership which has come from, which is mobilized in the cities, in, in the colleges in the 80s or even earlier, uh, and, you know, went to the plains and then went to the, went to the, went to the forested areas. And these are all tend to be uh, mainly upper caste, um, very well educated, um, men and, um, and the, they're steeped in uh, a reading of communist theory, of um, of communist texts, and an idea of what revolution ought to be about. And um, one of the big um, uh, issues that they, you know, that they, that that has driven this movement is the analysis of the Indian economy, as as you point out, and um, the the implication is so why why this is really important is because it drives the kind of path that they will follow. So um, the idea is that if uh, as Mao did when he uh, when he analyzed the Chinese economy, the Indian economy is semi feudal or semi colonial. This then leads Leads to you know a, a, a Maoist path of fight of of fighting uh, first in the um, uh, in the countryside and then moving into the cities. Um, whereas if the economy is declared to be you know uh, much more capitalist, then uh, it calls for uh, um, a much more slow, protracted struggle, an open struggle as opposed to uh, an underground struggle, uh, which you know can involve kind of parliamentary policy. Politics, uh, and you know, to prepare for an, an eventual insurrection, and so this analysis of the economy is is absolutely crucial for this leadership because it determines the kind of fight that they will have. You know, the kind of struggle that or all their, their their strategy and therefore their tactics, uh, and um, and so yeah, and so that this is the this is the, the you know the pro. Every few years, there are big debates within the movement about, you know, how should we analyze the Indian economy? And every few years, you know, it's decided that, no, 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 it's still semi-feudal, it's still semi-colonial. And it's almost, as I say, at the end of Night March, it's almost become like a kind of religious text, you know, this idea uh, of, you know, their strategy um, being driven by the semi-colonial, semi-feudal idea. Um, and, 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 and that's, you know, that's... That's why they, you know, still maintain this protracted people's war and underground war uh, and armed war, uh, which is very much, you know, driven from this idea of going from the countryside to the cities. Uh, and, and, you know, that's how, this is how, as you say, factions have been formed. So those people that don't agree basically, you know, leave and and become a different faction. And, and some have gone into more open party uh, parliamentary politics, too, and are, and are called slides too. Mm, because you're the the book recounts you you are present at one of these um I think it's five yearly uh, uh you know uh, big debates you know the the kind of uh you know gathering uh, of of these forces who are otherwise dispersed and indeed like, there's a very there's a it really made me smile you encounter you know one of these very senior leaders a guy called uh, Bimalji I think you know he he sort of was involved in these very very kind of factional arguments um over uh, over the nature of the, the Indian economy, including these kind of very this very dark chapter, 
uh, of kind of splits within in the movement and, and sort of very sharp and very angry fighting. Uh, and you sort of almost get out of him an account of what what that's like to be reconciled with his comrades or to be sleeping besides men he might once have ordered uh, to, to, to be killed. Uh, and then he sort of retreats into this kind of very formal account of um, of these debates. And I just wonder if you, if you have a sense of, you know, is there a section of, of the movement who recognizes how ossified these debates have become? Definitely. Um, I, I think so. I think a lot of my, um, a lot of my critique of the movement, which is, uh, you know, I mean, the book is, as you say, very sympathetic at one level uh, to the overall, you know, sentiments uh, of, of people who join the movement, but also extremely critical of the routes they've taken uh, uh, and all, you know. Uh, yeah, the deep violence that lies within at all kinds of levels, gender violence, including. But I think my critique, all my critiques kind of emerge almost in dialogue uh, with many of the people that I, you know, lived with and moved with. Gyanji, for example, you know, who is this high caste leader. You know, these are these are things that they all probably have thought at various points, you know, um, but they can't say them anymore or they can't they can't be the ones to say them because almost saying them is like, okay, you're out, you know. Uh, it's like a betrayal to the movement itself. That's why I say it's become like this religious ideology which, you know, you can't you can't question anymore uh, because that's what would break, you know, would break up the movement. So I feel that in a, a lot of the critiques that I come up with, including, you know, that the idea of the, of the of the Indian economy, these are all things that they are, you know, that I'm sure that most of them doubt. Um, but, well, you know, I mean, yeah, <laughs> they'd probably disagree if they were here right now, you know, but, uh, um, but uh, you know, I'd be surprised if, if yeah. And, 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 you know, these have risen within conversations. My, my ideas have risen in con- conversation with them. So that also gives, you know, it's it's good for me to be able to say these things because in a way, you know, it's outsiders that have to make these critiques. It's interesting, isn't it? I mean, because I was thinking when, when reading the end of it that if you pursue that sort of religious analogy, which, you know, I mean, it, you know, it goes so far and it's I think it's helpful to, to some degree. So, of course, reformers within religion usually articulate their reforms in the terms of the thing that they're reforming. So when you, you know, you, you articulate a reform first by you know, like assuring that you're being very orthodox in your reform and nonetheless kind of smuggle it in. So I wonder if there's a a, a route in there. Interesting. Mm. One of the things that's, that's, you know, a a question here is you talk about the way in which sort of young men are are often attracted to the movement, uh, not just through, you know, agreement with its ideas, but also, you know, the prospect of education. Uh, and, and, And I, you know, it's, it's interesting you know, I, I thought while reading the book, the account here is of a relative, you know, in terms of caste, is of a relatively static um, leadership. How many people in the leadership positions are from sort of non-elite caste backgrounds? There's a huge critique of the movement that, you know, it's failed to, um, yeah, give rise to Dalit or Adivasi leaders, you know, right at the top top end. And one of the things I argue in the book um, is that this is why, you know, a lot of Dalits and Adivasis have, especially Dalits, have left the movement and how this kind of class struggle has actually given rise to, you know, so many other struggles which are much more identity-based, Dalit struggles and Adivasi struggles expressed in those terms or and, and also women's movements. 
one of the things that I thought was really striking in in your conversations with um, Gyanji um, was about this question of, of violence, right? Which is is sort of ever present in the book. There, there are these acts of violence, right? So there are executions of informants, um, you know, the, the the decisions of people's courts. Uh, and there's also articulated the sort of standard rationale for terrorism, right? That we don't attack civilians, that, that the attacks are, um, you know, uh, aimed against kind of security forces and so on and so on and so on. Uh, and, you know, to articulate, you know, they're also articulated in the terms of the kind of, you know, violence, which is uh, very, very obvious and very clear, both from the state, but also from uh, the exploiters, from from the those seeking um, the resources on which um, many of these these communities sit, which I think is another dimension that, that's worth mentioning. But Gyanji said something very interesting to you, I think, you know, in the book that, and it was about political violence, right? And that, 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 it runs this risk of kind of constraining the horizons, uh, you know, in which these movements operate, right? So that the question of building a better world sort of almost, it seems kind of collapses into the question, the immediate question, the immediate and necessary question of kind of military organization and, and specialism. So I, I guess my question for you is, do you have a sense if, of how people were trying to to cling on to and you know, maybe perpetuate the the kind of ideals by which they would, you know, I think especially this this leadership cast, um, you know, the ideals by which they were drawn to and that initially certainly sustained their presence in the movement. Well, well that's a really interesting question. Um, you know, people like Gyanji really uh, are interesting because Gyanji, before he joined this movement, you know, he, he was known by his friends um, to not be able to even, you know, step on a line of ants, right? Like he, he, he you know, he was, he was actually, um, uh, an ascetic, like, uh, he was, he was, he was waiting on the banks of the Ganges, you know, for his nirvana to come and, um, thought, you know, he was, he was renowned, you know, he thought he would renounce the world and that renunciation, you know, involves entails a certain kind of violence. And he, he was, he was enabled to then convert that into, you know, saying that that was a renunciation for a very individual kind of, uh, end, you know, that renunciation for himself, liberation for himself. And then he wanted to, you know, have renunciation for the rest of, rest of the world. And that involved that need, needed, that necessitated. Uh, taking up violence to change things in 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 the here and now to taking up arms, but yeah, as you say, he was very very um, aware of the uh, of the, the the difficulty of, of this of the, of of how you know how people you mentioned education earlier you know the need to educate people into the 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 ideals of the movement the wider wider ideology of the movement why it's important to fight um the inequalities people are faced with so that there were all these Adivasis who were coming into the movement and they were driven by all kinds of reasons, you know, a fight with a parent, leaving, uh, you know, wanting to see a different world, you know, the appeal of education. Um, 
But, you know, essentially they came into this very, very militarized um, structure. They, you know, arms were arms were very important because they had to defend themselves. And um, so it gives rise to, you know, what Gianchi calls these Frankenstein's monsters, whereby you create, uh, you know, you with, if you don't pay attention to kind of mass education and, and if you don't pay attention to the political education of people who are joining you, then essentially, you know, you end up focusing on 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 just the arms, and that arms, you know, that focus on the arms can destroy you because you it, it, in in the end you you produce the very kind of monsters in his, you know in his words that you're you're trying to um, that you're trying to fight against, uh, and um, yeah, so I think that that kind of idea of that double edged idea of violence was you know. People like Gianchi were very aware, aware, aware of that, uh, and there were always big debates on, you know, um, yeah, on the use of violence, like you know, on the use of arms. Should we, you know, should we be focusing on on the military t- training, or should we be focusing on the mass education and and a critique of the movement for for having to focus on them on 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 the arms because essentially you know they were they were you know they were all they were under attack from all sides so they didn't have you know there was no space to do any mass work with a small kind of retreating army there's something you know quite moving in in the book which is you know essentially asking you know the question that hovers over it in some ways is um you know one of the the young recruits um you know the question of, of which direction will he take you know um whether he'll 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 become one of these sort of frankenstein's monsters or whether he will be um you know more in the vein of a uh 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 who you're talking about there or prashant uh, who's also a, an important uh, and rather charming and kind figure uh, in, you know, in your narrative. And this question, I mean, I think, you know, maybe it's worth just talking a little bit about the kind of paradoxical temptations that arise as a consequence of the control of territory, right? Which is that um, there has to be this kind of uneasy negotiation with capitalism, right? So you have these people who are drawn into the movement and then are uh, flung up against all these opportunities, you know, the, these opportunities for self-enrichment or earning. Could you tell us a, a little bit about how that works? Absolutely. You're, you know, you're so right. Um, so, you know, let's take the example of Coley, the young man you, you mentioned, who was my bodyguard through this night march. And, um, you know, I knew him from back in the village. I knew his father, his whole family, and I knew his whole story. His father was so upset, you know, the day he learned that Coley had run away to, to, to join the Naxalite forces. And, um, in fact, the Naxalite leader who, who Coley went to first said, you know, no, no, you can't come, you know, um, go back home. You know, your father's going to be very upset. He was friends with his father. Um, and Coley had run away essentially because, you know, he'd, he'd had a fight with his father. His father had hit him actually when he was working in his tea shop. And, you know, he just spilled a glass of milk and his father had hit him. And, you know, it's very common for parents to do that in, uh, uh, in those areas. And um, so Coley ran away. 
So, you know, a lot of a lot of youth came to the movement for these kinds of reasons. Oh, you know, there was a, somebody they'd fallen in love with was in the movement. You know, they went and lived with them. And, and many, and people like Chloe, you know, they'd come, often they'd come for six months and then they go back to the villages and then they come again. And, you know, so the movement was very used to having people dropping in and out uh, and also thought that was a problem because they couldn't have continuity. But eventually, and why this happens is because the movement was so embedded in those areas, you know, there were there were kinship relations going in and out of the movement uh, and the Adivasi villages, you know, across, across these areas. Um, but then eventually, you know, people like some people, you know, like, like Kohli um, would, would stay in the movement. So they'd stay year in, year out. And they'd, you know, as they stayed and they showed commitment, they would become, have more and more positions of responsibility. So they'd become, you know, a commander of an area commander. And then, you know, they, they might be moved into a platoon and they might become, you know, eventually a platoon commander like Vikas, who is the Frankenstein's monster of um in in the book does and um as they do that they come to have more and more responsibilities in the movement and so this is not just you know in terms of learning to use arms but also in terms of you know how is this movement going to sustain itself and i think all such movements they have a problem on the one hand they are kind of anti-capitalist and want to create you know a different a kind of more communal uh, a, 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 a different structure within them but how do they do that they have to rely on resources right and how do they get those they can't do that unless they're immersed in the capitalist economy which is around them so for the naxalites you know they had to get um they had to get money they had to get funds to feed their armies to arm their armies um you know to sustain the movement how did they do that they immerse themselves as i had initially said you know in in these very in these protection rackets where they became the strong man who seeped off you know funds from roads building projects in the areas or you know health centers or community building projects or 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 or, or and another another big uh, thing was um contractorships over these be- um, beady leaves you know beady leaves which are um, leaves from the kendu tree which are used to make be- beadies these indian cigarettes and so the whole this whole area had these kendu leaves and you know once a year there'd be a big contracts for them there's big one money involved um, because it's run by a huge industry that goes out into culture Kata and then um, and 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 so um, they got uh, they started to tax all these contractors, uh, you know, and it was, you know they call it taxation. It essentially their protection rackets, and so as you went up, you know, in the hierarchies, you 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 had responsibility for collecting all this money, and of course there was temptations, right? Like, you know, to yeah, to take a little bit of money and put it in your in your own pocket, and yeah, of course you know you wanted to have that you know nice house in the city and maybe have a maybe have a bolero or maybe not even just that you know maybe even just you know some a new shoe new shoes or you know a fancy jacket or you know it starts with all those little little things right but it's a super interesting cultural question isn't it because like the the way that you talk about Gyanji you know and you, you make this connection explicitly is that he's you know he's he's connected to this sort of ascetic counterculture which has you know quite quite deep roots within sort of you know, various subcontinent cultures, right? This the tradition of renunciation, sannyasa, all, all of this stuff. You know, it's it's obviously feeding the the kind of very determined sort of yeah, countercultural attitude, which, you know, in, at least on some level allows, 
you to resist temptation. But I think there's something interesting about how difficult it is for so many, including eventually Gyanji, who who does you know who I think was eventually um, arrested and uh, and is now I I don't know whether, I don't know whether he's still alive, but but he he was certainly you know in, you know being held by. Uh, the state, and I'm sure tortured, but that was because he went to see his family. <laughs> you know, this question of renunciation and asceticism—it's obviously a profoundly difficult thing to do. Absolutely, yeah, totally. Um, uh, you, you know, and you've hit the nail on the head when you say, you know, it's not just for these Adivasi soldiers, but even for these people who have renounced everything. So the leadership—you know—they're broken with their past. They're supposed to have broken with their families, and many really tried to do that, but you know, they couldn't. They couldn't totally do that, and and Gyanji, you know, gets caught out in the end because of that. Um, whereas the Adivasi foot soldiers, you know, they they had essentially joined the movement, not breaking with their past, but in fact continuing their past, which is which was which was a problem for the movement. Um, and in fact, they had countercultures in those villages, which were perhaps much more in line with what uh, the 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 higher caste wanted to create. You know, the the the, the leadership wanted to create in in eventually in terms of their utopian future. You know, an idea of communism, but they couldn't see it as such because of their stagist vision of history, their stagist vision of you know how society needs to you know develop from. From yeah, what they saw this as primitive communism, but eventually you'd have a you know much more sophisticated, much form of communist communism, and you had to go through capitalism first in order to get there. So they couldn't you know embrace what the what the Adivasi countercultures already were in these areas um, into the movement itself, and I think that was one of you know one of their big failures and why it gave rise to people like Vikas, partly why it get, gave rise to people like because who did eventually you know betray the movement oh i shouldn't i, sh- I shouldn't uh, say what happens at the end but yes <laughs> i mean i think I, I i think there's a really interesting tension there to bring out i mean you say in the sort of bibliographical essay towards the the, the back of the book you, you point out that you know there has been a temptation for for scholars to fit the movement either too easily into sort of classically communist or you know, uh, classic sort of indigenous emancipation movements, and that it sits kind of interestingly, I think, between the the two of them. And I suppose one of the things you're talking about here is this encounter between um, sort of classically Maoist intellectual framework and Advasi culture. Um, And so the the classically Maoist bit of the movement obviously thinks that, that, you know, however receptive and useful um, you know the 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 cultures that they encounter have been that they must be swept away by development, and that indeed development is is in itself no bad thing. You know, one of the things that's really striking, especially in your accounts of sort of women's roles, uh, and especially in in I think you know really interestingly around the role of alcohol, for instance. Um, you know that that there are there are strong countercultural and egalitarian parts of uh, uh, of these these cultures that 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 kind of get overlooked or that that are just really really awkward so you know for for, for especially for the leaders uh, uh, to deal with and it's striking i guess how, how far sort of caste prejudice but also gender prejudice um sort of persists yeah thank you for picking up on that it's um you know matter which is very close to my heart the last part of the book is or you know i mean the book kind of 
yeah, you know, as you as you'll have noticed, it it develops into a stronger and stronger and stronger critique of the movement, and eventually it ends up with gender relations and and you know and alcohol. I mean, one of the things that I, I guess anybody who's traveled in India will know is, um, you know, apart from in the cities, the how how. Um, oppressive gender relations are, you know, and I think this is most clearly observed around drinking practices and how, um, you know, everywhere in, in India, you it's very, you, you don't get women drinking uh, with men. It's men who drink and they drink behind closed curtains and, um, and, and, and women, you know, if they drink, they, it'll, it's totally hidden uh, and it's not permitted. And, you know, uh, and um, what you, what you find, which is in Adivasi areas, which is quite extraordinary, which, you know, really surprised me when I first went there, went to these areas is how, how common it is um, how uh, for for men and women to drink openly together. Um, drink is a big part. You know, this is homemade brew. Um, yeah, brewed from rice and mahua wine made from the mahua flower. And men and women, it's it's a big part of all ritual celebrations. So all, all celebrations around the year, it's a part of all life cycle rituals birth, marriage, death, you know, and the first drops are always served to, to ancestors, to the, to your ancestors on the, on the ground. And, um, yeah, drinking practices are, 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 you know, very openly shared men and women together, um, sit around in circles and serve each other and drink together. And, um, the Naxites came into these areas and, you know, yeah, they are, um, into their women's liberation front, which they'd formed, you know, was basically told to go and, um, break all the alcohol pots of, 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 um, uh, you know, in, in all of these villages. So, you know, Somvari, who, who is this, uh, Adivasi woman I lived with around, um, from the, the time I was there, you know, she, she had her, Pots of uh, Harya uh, making, you know, uh, these clay pots all stamped by this, these, uh, um, by the Women's Liberation Front. And, you know, she was just like horrified when this happened. And, um, and then on the other hand, you know, they have these International Women's Day celebrations where, you know, Clara Zetkin and other, um, uh, uh, you know, international Women's Day heroes are celebrated. Um, and so, you know, gender egalitarianism is supposed to be a big part of this movement. But on the other hand, this movement goes around, you know, stamping out all the practices of gender egalitarianism amongst the Adivasis. And this is very much to do with this leadership, which has, you know, very high caste ideas of what this drinking represents. And for them, it represents, you know, the sexual exploitation of women and the oppression of women. Uh, men drink and beat up their women. And, you know, is is, is the hub of kind of um, domestic violence and these are the attitudes you know they they have to it so it's very hard to recognize you know the practices of adivasis as they exist uh, um, and um, and so I, you know I, I for me this was you know causing a kind of greater violence amongst uh, the adivasis because then you also have you know people like Vikas the adivasi um, platoon commander who eventually betrays the movement, you know, who who grow up and start to, you know, think as the leadership does and come, you know, want to start put, keeping their own women inside of the household rather than letting them out and stop drinking practices within their own households. So it seeps in right into the, you know, into the heart of everyday practices within Hadibasi homes and transforms them from within. 
I wonder, I mean, uh, her story, um, Sombari's story is especially interesting because you round off the, the book with a note that she has since become attached to uh, a, what sounds like a, a quite a uh, an intense sort of religious cult. And, and you, you sort of end with the, the, I think, the implied speculation that you know, the, increasingly these sort of spiritual sort of sects are making inroads in these communities. And, you know, these this is presumably an avenue down which, you know, uh, Hindutva will, will travel. It's so interesting. Um, yes. Uh, so that's a kind of, it's a very speculative end that I make there um, where, you know, yes, yeah, Somvari, she, you know, overnight, um transforms herself you know she stops drinking alcohol she stops eating meat she um she starts uh yeah going to these little gatherings of chanting you know people getting possessed and chanting hindu mantras which she hasn't really done before and um and she's you know joined by more and more adivasis who are who are joining these little sects and and these are all prayers to the lord shiv and uh you know i could see how so easily these could be in- incorporated into this you know, uh, into the spread of Hindutva forces uh, in these areas, because they're also trying to enter these areas, right? Um, uh, and the Naxalites are, are one of their, you know, the, the, the Naxalites don't exist in the areas where the Hindutva forces exist, and, and the Hindutvas are trying, you know, trying to get in. And um, so, yeah, I can I, I could very well Im- imagine this, but it also comes back to an earlier issue you you raise, which is about, you know, reform and, and how, you know, whether you can have reform within these movements in within the language of those movements. And what I find very interesting about the spread of this shift, such shift charcha is how the language of it, you know, is the bodily language that the, the whole language of it, you know, at every, every, at every level is, is um, so different. Um, you know, so people are transform entire bodily transformations going on. And, and I've also, I've often wondered about this in relation to the spread of Pentecostalism, you know, in, in other parts of the world where also you have this complete transformation of people um, taking place. Uh, and, um, yeah, to what extent such movements, uh, you know, like the Maxites could tap into that, which they're not, you know, which they're clearly not doing. Yeah, I mean, I think maybe the thing to, to say is, is, is maybe, and this helps us circle back to the, the present day and the, the sort of repression, it, you know, it is, is just where a lot of your subjects have ended up. Because even by the end of, I, we should say, you know, the, the narration of your book is, is, you know, it's 10 years ago now. So there's a decade since. Um, and, and maybe you could just sketch for us some of the trajectories that, that people have gone on. Um, because, you know, already by that point, you know, the, the repression was really taking its toll and these, these military uh, operations were delving deeper and deeper into to sort of next like heartlands, as it were. Uh, and now it, it seems to me that, that, that the situation is much, much, much worse. It's, uh, yeah, it is. Um, uh, so the central characters, um, Prashant, um, you know, this is just to give everything away to the readers, but Prashant was, Prashant was killed, uh, along actually a very similar, uh, along the, along the same kind of route traveling from Bihar to Jharkhand that I did with that next slide platoon over, um, uh, in, in those nights in 2010. He was killed, I think it was 2013 on the same route, along with many others by the state, state security forces. 
Uh, actually, the state security forces said it was another gang that had killed him. So, um, <laughs> but the Naxalite said that that gang was sponsored by the state. Um, and so you can see, you know, well, this it also shows you how the counterinsurgency is spreading through various different means, including vigilante gangs. Um, and then uh, Gyanji was, yeah, imprisoned, uh, as you've already said. Um, Vikas um, uh, turned, uh, yeah, he came to betray the movement as I had thought he he was doing even when we were on that march because he was a guy that, you know, was the most suspicious of and always thought he was about to lead us into a police trap. And, um, and yeah, he came to betray the, 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 the movement and, but then they ended up, you know, trying to, um, he, he formed a gang taking several, several other soldiers with him, but then eventually the Nag sites, the CPI Maoists, you know, Communist Party of India Maoists as they're called, um, killed him. Uh, and, um, uh, Somvari, Somvari is still in, uh, Lalgao. Um, I haven't, um, I haven't been able to make contact, I mean, speak to her, but, uh, her husband still travels to Chennai, uh, um, to, to work as a construction laborer. And when the lockdowns were called and earlier this year, you know, he, he, he managed to make contact with me. So half of the time, it's really difficult to make contact in these areas because, the, you know, you just can't get a mobile signal. And, and of course, I can't make contact with those who are in prison. And, you know, it's very hard to get information uh, without going there. But yes, yeah, some worries husband called me when the lockdowns were, were called. And, um, you know, he was like debating what to do, whether to stay in Chennai, because as you know, you know, all these migrant laborers, they all marched, you know, had to take to their feet and march home. Uh, they had no other choice. Uh, because yeah, the, the the their employers weren't going to feed them uh, back in their workplaces, and the only places they could go to, you know, was where they could be potentially looked after was at home, uh, which is thousands of kilometers away. And and in in uh, somebody's husband, yeah, he called me, and he was basically deciding what to do, whether he would stay or whether he would go. You know, going was not easy because now Lalgan was occupied by the security forces. Uh, entirely um and uh you know it would have been it would have been a difficult journey and then difficult when he ended up there so uh and i think he didn't go in the end but many others uh, many others did i mean i think that the question that's been on my mind sort of both sort of rereading this book just recently and also like just just in the course of our conversation is that there is there is a wave of political oppression a, a repression here and it, on the one hand, targets kind of guerrilla fighters, and that's a wave of repression that's been going on for a long time, as you say. There is also, on its back, is justified, or it's part of a much wider range of uh, repressive measures taken by the current government, right? And, and these are incredibly violent, um, and these are incredibly dangerous, I think. And so the question that's been sort of on my mind throughout it has been about the question of like political fight back, right? And obviously this is a problem in some ways for, for the Naxalites because the participation within formal politics is, is, is theoretically very difficult for them to justify. But, you know, it, it seems to me that there is almost an urgent need both nationally within India, but also for those of us internationally who are, are very worried about the way this stuff is going, to to find some way of supporting a, a kind of political response to the the politics of 
uh, of Modi of the BJP, uh, and especially you know over the course of the the past year these you know attacks on uh, uh, the uh, Jawaharlal Nehru University in in in, in Delhi and in the, these kind of extraordinarily um, you know whipped up frenzies against you know any dissent. So is there somewhere we should be looking for for this kind of political? fight back? Oh, I'm so glad you bring all of this up. It's so important. Um, You know, I wrote a new preface tonight, March, um, for the paperback, which was just published, which, you know, addresses all all of these issues in a way, you know, Naxalism, although it's being crushed within um, within the forests, it's gained a whole new leash of life because uh, of the way in which it's been used to, you know, repress any form of dissent, the country at large, you know, not begin, you know, with these, starting with all of these um, uh, intellectuals and activists, but yeah, spreading into the universities where so many students have been arrested, where there's this wider, you know, clampdown on any kind of student protest and labeling of people as as Naxals. Uh, any kind of attempt to crush dissent, you know, has has evoked, you know, Naxalism and there's been such widespread um, attempt to crush dissent. And it's funny how, you know, at this time also, you know, there's been this resurgence in this idea of Naxalism at the same time where, you know, people are saying, well, you know, if that person's a Naxal, then me too, you know, urban Naxal. And there was this kind of Twitter upsurge at, at one, one moment in time. And clearly what is meant by that is, you know, a creating a, a, a much broader forum demo, for democratic dissent, you know, in, in, in India, dissenting with the current government, bringing to, you know, holding it to account for the kinds of violence that are going on. And um, it's become very difficult within India because the people who are dissenting are the ones who are being, you know, imprisoned, who are, you know, who are writing, who are calling fact-finding missions, who are holding, you know, non-violent protests who are not at all Naxals, you know, who are, who are simply, you know, um, protesting, uh, highlighting what's going on. Uh, are being are being imprisoned. So I think this um, places an even greater pressure on all of us, like internationally, uh, to draw yeah to draw attention to what is going on, to uh, create forums of solidarity um, on our radio stations, in our universities, uh, you know, in in our in our writing, um, and uh, yeah to. to 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 leave open the spaces for for dissent, you know, for democratic dissent, and I think that's the greatest thing, like that we ought to be fighting for right now. Um, a lot of people are protesting, of course, you know, Amnesty International, the the various bar associations in the UK, in the US, um, but you know, some of them are also being thrown out, like Amnesty India has been asked to, you know, close down its its operations. So I think this really, really um, makes it more important than ever for international solidarity um, around, yeah, protecting the freedom of dissent um, in India. I think that's the right place for us to leave it this week. Alpa Shah. Night March is out now in paperback and it has an important new preface which catches up on the Modi government's crackdown on all forms of dissent and its use of the bogeyman of the urban Naxal. As Alpa mentioned in the interview, it also dwells on the case of the BK-12, now the BK-16, including among the latest arrests, a Jesuit priest and advocate for Adivasi rights. Now, that case is one which requires urgent international solidarity and attention. There will be more to come from us here at Navarra Media on politics in India, something too often, I think, neglected by the Anglophone left. 
And if you pop over to the website in the notes for this show, you'll find a link to that new essay, which is republished in full over at Jacobin. But that's it for this week. We'll be back next week here on Resonance 104.4 FM. But until then, stay locked on. I'll see you soon. Lao Salaam and goodbye. This broadcast is brought to you by Navara Media. Go to navaramedia.com slash support.